Hi, I'm Emily Salaby, founder of Juno Jones, the stylish safety boot company, and your host on the Hazard Girls podcast here on Jacket Media. I'm so honored to host this show where I get to chat with Hazard Girls about their careers. Hazard Girls is an online community for women working in traditionally male-dominated fields. On our show, you'll get to hear from these amazing women about the path that led them to their current careers, challenges they've overcome, advice for other women in entering these industries, and more. Jennifer Zhang started a watch company six months out of college. She was broke and had just quit her full-time job. Within two weeks, she launched a successful Kickstarter campaign and turned a $1,000 investment into $91,000. Her company, Rotate Watches, continued on to sell $400,000 in the first year. And that was during COVID. And it continues to grow today. Oh my God. Welcome to the Hazard Girls podcast, Jennifer. Thank you so much, Emily. I'm so happy to be here. That is an incredible accomplishment and so exciting, especially at such a young age. So I would like to just start out by hearing a little bit about your company. What is Rotate Watches? Yeah, absolutely. So Rotate Watches sells kits. So we sell complete kits to build a mechanical watch. So all of our kits include the parts, tools, and guidance that a customer would need to put together a fully mechanical watch. That is so interesting. I didn't even know there was a market for this. How did you know there was a market for this? (laughs) Yeah, so it was definitely the first of its kind. I really came upon the idea for it back in 2017. I just started building watches as a hobby in the middle of college and At the time, no such kit existed. So for an individual beginner like myself, it was very, very difficult to learn the ropes. There were very few resources online. And without going to an expensive watchmaking school, it was just very hard to learn overall. So, Did you say watchmaking school? Yeah. So I I didn't actually go to a formal watchmaking school. I ended up teaching myself with everything that I could find online and in books. But typically, um, to build a watch without a kit, you would need to go to an expensive watchmaking school. Otherwise, it's just very challenging. Is a watchmaking school part of a university or is that a trade school? What is that? So I think there might be some courses that are part of a university, although the ones that people typically go to would be specializing in watchmaking. So there's a handful around the U.S. I know there's one in Illinois. pretty sure there's one in Washington. And yeah, these are schools that are specifically dedicated to teaching watchmaking. So someone would go there for like a couple semesters and really learn it and then they'd get a certification out of it. So interesting. Where did you go to college and what were you studying when you had this idea? Yeah, so I went to USC, Southern California, and I was just studying business uh, with a concentration in entrepreneurship and then I minored in web dev. Yeah, so it wasn't really related to my major at all. The idea wasn't related to the major. It was really just this hobby that I also picked up while I was at USC. And USC was really, they have a really great network. So I was able to meet a lot of awesome people and get some help that way, like at least starting out the company and figuring it out. You said you were taking an entrepreneurship class. And is that where you came up with the idea to do the watch kit in the class? Yeah. So I came up with the idea prior to the class. Although for all the different entrepreneurship classes, you basically do an idea per class usually. So I came up with the idea. And then when I took the entrepreneurship class, like a semester later, I did bring it to the class and really grow it. And that gave me some guidelines on exactly, you know, what to figure out for starting the company. 
And it, it was a great way to like push me to grow the idea even more from just an idea. And when you emerged from the class, when the class was all finished, what stage were you at in your company? At that point, it was still definitely just an idea phase. I didn't actually launch the company until I was six months out of college. So I, I brought it to that entrepreneurship class in like 2018 or so, worked on it for a semester, and I continued to slowly grow it in the background. But I didn't actually pull a trigger and launch it until October of 2019. Okay, so when you were still in the class, you were just in the idea phase, so you were developing the concept. And so what did that consist of? I think people would be interested to know, you know, like what you were exactly doing during that development phase. Yeah, so the entrepreneurship classes usually have a pretty standard curriculum of what what they want you to develop and things like that. And the classes don't usually expect you to put together a prototype. It's more so figuring out your business plan, like exactly what your market size is, who your competitors are, what your advantage is, and being able to put together a business plan. For me, I've always been more hands-on, so I did also develop a prototype during that time, which I would encourage everyone to do if they start you know, working on an idea and bringing it to a class. It can always come to life. It's just like, I wish the classes emphasized more of actually putting together the prototypes and supply chain. So the classes were mainly focused on just getting the idea down and really like knowing all the different parts that would go into the company. I think the idea of creating a prototype can be really intimidating, especially for those who aren't technically inclined in that way. So how did you do that? Did you, were you actually literally taking watches and taking them apart and putting them together? How did you do it? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I completely agree. I feel like supply chain, finding all your suppliers and making a prototype is definitely what discourages a lot of potential entrepreneurs. Because if you've never done it before, it can be very daunting. Like, where do you find the suppliers? How do you put together the prototype? You know, so I, it definitely depends on what your idea is. The company that I started before this was in CPG. So we were making like snack products. So for something like that, you could always just make the prototype yourself, like cook it yourself, you know, just get the different ingredients, make it yourself. For something like mine, so I actually went and I, I had begun watchmaking uh, a year before that. So I already had a bunch of the parts. So I ended up just getting a lot more of those parts online just to make a prototype, you know. And then when I actually searched for suppliers, that's when I sent them like the samples that I already had and had them make it based off of the ones that I already had <laughs> because getting those parts were easier, things like that. And some of them were slightly customized for the pieces that are customized. A lot of the times you need to know at very minimum Photoshop and then the supplier can create the actual CAD file and product out of what you send them. Yeah, that must have been hard to find a supplier because it's not like it already existed. So you can't just go to a factory that makes watches and say, make me this watch. So how did you manage to find a factory willing to do that for you to, to create watches that weren't put together? Yeah, I even currently have over a dozen different suppliers because with the watch parts industry, it's very segmented, very spread out, where there's not one factory that is the best at all the different parts. So there's a lot of companies that make the individual components. So I really did a lot of trial and error, like ordered some parts from one guy and then switched to another guy, just like seeing who would be the best fit. And then in terms of compatibility between the parts, that was really just up to me to make sure that I got the samples and that they were all fitting together before I put it into a bulk order. 
I mean, I thought shoes had a lot of parts, but now that I'm thinking about watches, I can't even imagine. Do you have an idea of how many parts are in there? What's an estimate for us? Yeah. So in terms of different parts, there are, I'd say 10 different parts. Um, Of course, if you take apart like the movement and everything, then it brings you to over 40 different parts. But I'd say, I'd say around 10 different parts, separate parts for the parts. And then tools we provide like five different tools and then we have our packaging and inserts and everything so crazy going back a little bit so you were in your class you came up with the idea and you waited until you actually after you finished the class i think you said you graduated and then you waited a little while until you launched it then i also heard you slip in there something about my first company (laughs) so don't think you're going to get away with that what's your first company what do you mean you had another company before this yeah Yeah, so roti was actually my third company and it's definitely the biggest company so i wouldn't like put too much emphasis on the other two the first company i had i started just as a freshman and it was a really small like glass jewelry company more so just to test the ropes of entrepreneurship like go through the process like with a really easy product and see how it did and then the second company was a coffee bar company so it was kind of like a new type of chocolate where we used coffee beans to make it so it was like naturally caffeinated naturally flavored and that one was definitely bigger than the first company yeah I, I'd say that rote right now is definitely the biggest one that I've that I've worked with yeah so how old were you when you started these other companies so my first company, I was 18, second company, I was 19, and then Rotate, I was 20, technically. Uh-huh. And are people calling you like an entrepreneurship prodigy? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> I don't think I'm, I, I have yet to get to that point yet. <laughs> I wouldn't call myself an entrepreneurship prodigy either. That's a very impressive, though. So do you come from a family of entrepreneurs? How did you get into it? No, it, it was actually pretty ironic. Like, my parents are very conservative, very traditional, like, they wanted me to go into a standard corporate job where everything would be very safe for me and I would have like a stable source of income. My theory is that by pushing me to go, like always go into like fit in this mold that I didn't want to fit in, that it made me more like rebellious and not wanting to do what they <laughs> told me to do and to be more risky. So I think that's how it happened. But yeah, my family was not entrepreneurial at all. <laughs> Yeah. Well, my theory is that you're just born with entrepreneurship in your blood and you cannot fight it. <laughs> so, Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I wish I knew. <laughs> okay, Jennifer. So you graduated from college and you said that you waited a little bit before starting the company Rotate Watches. Why did you decide to wait? Was What were you doing during that time? Yeah. So when I graduated college, I was definitely super broke. My parents had cut me off from getting any like money from them. <laughs> So I I really didn't have a choice but to go into a job of some sort. So I ended up just working for a startup in Marina Del Rey. So I did that. I worked in sales for, it was like a real estate tech company. And I did that for half a year. And I really loved the people there, like really loved the job. But I realized at some point, like I was barely making anything there, like barely accumulating any savings. And I, that there would be no perfect window to launch Rotate, you know? So I ended up just quitting that job and launching it like two weeks later. (laughs) So yeah, there was a lot of risk in that. But yeah, I I only had about two weeks to do it because otherwise I would have completely run out of money (laughs) and then had to have like figured out what to do from there. Yeah. I mean, I'm not, I'm not surprised that you waited six months because watch six months isn't that long, but I guess in startup world, it can be if somebody else catches wind of the idea and does it before you. So were you worried about that? 
I was a little bit worried about that. And another thing was I kind of figured that it would be really big during the holidays, which turned out to be true. So every year during the holidays, we have this really large spike in sales. And so I wanted to get it launched and actually live sales before the holidays that year. So I figured I could either launch it then or I would have to wait a whole other year. And then who can say what's going to happen in that year? You know, like someone else could come out with it. And it, it was actually kind of funny because a few months after we launched, some company in Asia actually came out with the same idea. And I don't know if they were like a copycat company or if they were planning to launch anyways, but the timing turned out to be really well. So I got the first mover advantage. Nice. So, okay. So how did you manage to launch a Kickstarter in two weeks? That's my question, because I know that <laughs> from my own experience and just from like all the reading and, and interviewing of people that I did when I was pr- planning to launch my Kickstarter is that there's, it really does require, usually it really does require quite a big launch period or lead up period. So how did you do it in two weeks? Yeah. So there were a few different factors to that. So it was actually my second Kickstarter for my, my second company. I also did a Kickstarter for that and that turned out to be successful. And I learned a lot during that Kickstarter. So going into this, I kind of knew that Rotate would be a great fit for Kickstarter's organic audience, which is very tech-oriented. Watches are very big on Kickstarter. So in the end, about a third of it came from like Kickstarter's organic audience. Um, I put a lot of, I put a good amount of spend into the actual campaign, like making a video out of it, putting together a really aesthetic-looking campaign itself, and then figuring out how to like work the algorithm. Like one thing you do is pour a lot of money into it in the first 24 hours and then Kickstarter's algorithm will bump you up higher because it seems like there's a lot of, you know, traction and momentum going into it. And uh, aside from that, I also did a lot of social media promotions, like reaching out to people over Instagram DMs, targeting people based off of the keywords they had in their bios, (laughs) all these things I didn't pay for, you know, it was all organic stuff. And then the other thing that I did that was really important was reaching out to editors at publications. So I got really lucky. New York Times was actually the the one of the first people to write about us. So we got a feature with them really, really early on, um, gave us a lot of traction and views as well. Yeah. And I, I try to advise against working with like when you when you launch a Kickstarter, there's a ton of different marketing companies that will reach out to you, basically all claiming that if you spend like a thousand bucks with them, that they'll bring you a ton of backers. <laughs> which most of the time isn't actually the case and you'll end up losing a ton of money um, going, you know, working with these companies. So that's what I was trying to avoid that time. Like I, I was just working with as many organic growth methods as I could. Did you do Facebook ads? I think I might've tried Facebook ads for a few days. And then I saw that the clicks or whatever, like weren't really working out too well. So I pulled the Facebook ads and I ended up putting my time towards something else. But yeah, I, I think it still gave me some exposure. So it was still a good angle to, to go with. And how did you come up with the designs that you launched on your Kickstarter? Was that something you did yourself? Yeah, so that was actually back in the entrepreneurship class that I did during college. So I had one teammate on there who ended up going to Harvard's architectural school for grad school. So he was very, very talented, like a really good designer, good eye for design. And he put together those first three mock-ups of the watches and we made some like slight adjustments to what they ended up being when we launched but it was basically designed by him and those are the ones you're still using 
Yes. So we still have those three watches. And then since then, we've come out with two more watch kits. And with those two watch kits, it was mostly me designing them, just going off of like what seemed to be trending in the market and what seems to be like a a timeless design. And that's what we put into those other two watches. You pretty much knew this was going to work. It seems like you because you took all your money and you put all your money into this and and you really went all in. So how did you know? How did you know it was going to catch on? Yeah, I was definitely super scared that it wasn't going to work. <laughs> um, I, I guess for me, I figured that if it didn't work, the worst case scenario would be that I just go get another job. And I didn't really feel that like I, I, I'm pretty used to applying for jobs or whatever. Like it, it didn't really seem like that bad to be applying to a ton of jobs. Like I figured that I would be able to get a job, you know, like worst comes to worst. So Yeah, I definitely was really, really scared that it wouldn't work out because I had loved that startup I was working for like so much. And I knew that I wouldn't be able to just like get my job back from them. So I was really worried that I was going to regret it. But yeah, I don't think you can ever fully know that it would work or like even even if you are, or this is so choppy, but I, I don't think that anyone should be fully convinced that it will work because then you may put less of an emphasis on your backup plan. And then it's like, what if it doesn't work? You know, you always have to have a backup plan. Yeah, that's good advice. That's good advice. Now, after your Kickstarter was done, um, you then you had to go find your suppliers. And again, this goes against everything I always learned about Kickstarter, you know, with the prevailing advice, you have your supply chain completely set up and ready to go. And then like, as soon as your Kickstarter is done, you can just go forward and get your product out there. And how long did it take you to, to deliver the product not having this set up yet? Yeah, so I actually started with suppliers um, about two days into the Kickstarter because we reached our goal within two days. So that was when we like needed to start getting onto it. So I started in October 2019, and then I ended up delivering the rewards between December or mostly December 2019, and then some in January, February 2020. So it, it took a few months to do that. Um, I already had a lot of suppliers like lined up. Um, from like the samples that I was getting from them and things like that. So I, I had like a bare bones of a plan for supply chain. So I ended up just like going with that and getting it to work. Um, but yeah, I was able to get it out and delivered within a few months. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. I mean, this was during COVID, right? Yeah. So COVID started, I guess in the US, it officially started March of 2020. So I, I had luckily finished delivering all my Kickstarter orders by the time that rolled around. And then I was already selling live on the website. And we actually came out on a pretty good end of COVID because everyone was stuck at home, like looking for a new hobby (laughs) for things to do. So we were able to leverage that angle really, really well. So yeah, for that, we we just got really lucky that. (laughs) And just think about the people you helped, you know, to cope with what they were dealing with by giving them something to occupy their minds. That's amazing. That must feel pretty good. Yeah, absolutely. I, I got a ton of customers who were saying that their families, like we're all just at home, like that they were able to really enjoy the activity and you know, it explored them, it, it gave them a new hobby that they could continue outside of Rotate as well. And it was just a really good feeling to know that we brought people that during COVID. Yeah. And, you know, just in general, with bringing STEM and introducing STEM fields to a larger audience, that must feel pretty good. Is that part of your mission to, to help especially women and girls learn more about STEM? Yeah, absolutely. So we've always targeted like people who are interested in tinkering or people who are in the STEM industries and wanting to learn something new. 
Um, one big thing for me since I started the company was that we're not selling a watch, we're selling an experience, a learning experience. So we put a lot of emphasis into that learning process. And our guides now are pretty long, extensive, very educational, just to teach people like everything about the watches, how to put it together and how all the different parts work together. Yeah, tell me about the manuals. Because we asked you, I know in, in our registration form, we always ask, um, you know, if people have written papers, and you said, well, I've written my manual. <laughs> and um, yeah, that and I want to hear more about these manuals. Can you tell us? Can you explain them to us? Yeah, so our, our user manuals, we currently have two that are out there right now for our two different styles of watch kits. And during the Kickstarter phase, they actually started out like pretty short, I squeezed them all into like 10 pages or so. But by now, they're all over 30 pages, <laughs> just like packed full of information. It's a living manual online so that we can continue to add new like tips, feedback points as we can like think of them or as like customers give us more feedback to add to them. And we're actually launching a new movement kit today. So um, if anyone's unaware, the movement is the part is, is basically the heart of the watch. It's like the mechanism that has the movement or that has the watch ticking. So we actually um, launched the movement kit today for live sales, and I'm almost done putting together the guide for that. And currently that guide is at around 70 pages, which is our longest, most expensive guide, packed full of information. But yeah, I'd say that putting together the manual was a very big part of Rotate um, because, you know, the manual shows all the information, controls like if the customers reach out to us, like what they see, how their experience is. No, I mean, I feel like this is almost disruption in itself, like this part of the, the manual part of your business, because, you know, usually when someone's buying something to put it together, it's because the company couldn't ship it whole and they had to put it together. So you want the manual to be as straightforward, easy as possible. Let's get it done. I don't want to read a bunch of stuff. I just want to understand it. But this is different because you're actually going to people with the purpose of them putting together. So people are probably hungry for as much information as they can get. So it becomes part of the whole experience. And the more, the better. Is that right? Yeah, I actually love that explanation. <laughs> Usually people like, hey, looking at manuals, but for us, it's a very big part. Like people definitely want to read every bit of the manual. <laughs> yeah, that's like, that's, that's the fun of it, right? Okay, so part of this whole conversation, like why we're together here today, is because Hazard Girls is all about women working in traditionally male-populated industries. That's what we're saying now. We're saying male-populated because men are no longer dominating all the time. So uh, we're just going to say that they're there. But um, And I got that from, from NAWIC, from the National Association of Women in Construction. We're in this male-populated industry, I guess, watchmaking. So I assume it's male-populated. You can correct me, but can you tell me a little bit about how it's been for you as a woman and as an Asian woman in, in the industry? Yeah, absolutely. So it's so the watchmaking industry and the watch industry in general have been very dominated by, or not dominated, <laughs> populated by old white men. So for me, as like a young Asian female, there's been some pros and some cons. So I guess I'll just start with the cons. Um, definitely had moments where I felt like people weren't really taking me seriously or kind of like dumbing things down for me or like talking down on me because of who I was and then thinking that I wasn't very knowledgeable in the industry. Um, those things are, you know, bound to happen, but things like that. I And then on the pro side, however, I, I was, I really wanted to leverage the pro side of just being a woman, like someone who wouldn't naturally be in this industry, but being in this industry. So that did help me in some ways, 
like the angle for the New York Times article that I was on was focusing on how like someone like me started this company and it was just like very non-traditional so in certain ways it, it, it can be a good thing to be in a male populated industry because that makes you like more special you know and it could give like publications more of an angle to focus on yeah, you're not the first person who said that to me, not necessarily about press, but that's an interesting angle. But also just in general, like sometimes if you're the only woman in a big room full of men, then every, people do notice you. So you, then you're remembered. So maybe that's a good thing sometimes. Yeah, I love that. That's a really great way to put it. So you were saying a moment ago, you were saying that sometimes people wouldn't take you seriously or would dumb it down. Are you talking about, was that during the supply chain process of this or was that during the actual startup process like maybe trying to get funding or something like that I feel like it comes through a lot of different ways so it did come through supply chain yeah just talking to the different suppliers and then like kind of dumbing down everything or like not revealing all the details to me because I didn't think that I would comprehend it or, or whatsoever and yeah during when I was launching it as well there was some like feedback from people saying just that you know I, I didn't like look like a watchmaker or things like how I clearly didn't know what I was doing <laughs> or just like comments like that where, yeah, but I, I, I try not to like take discouragement from that because I know what I do, you know? <laughs> exactly. And if I wanted to ask you, so the watches are for people to put together as a hobby and you said people do it with their families. What ages do you recommend? Yeah. So we typically recommend, or the people who primarily buy our kits are between the ages of like 25 to 44. So usually adults. We have had a lot of people build it with like their children or their kids. Um, we would typically recommend that if like a child is building it, that they're building it with like an adult or someone supervised just because watches have so many like small, delicate parts <laughs> where um, it often can be better handled by an adult. Although children, can, we've definitely had a lot of kids build it as well and who enjoyed the process as well. <laughs> have you ever thought of doing a kid's version? Yeah, actually. So that's one of the products that I want to get launched by next year or so. So we're thinking of doing like a more simplified kit where it can be building like a quartz watch or so. Like all the watches we have right now are mechanical, which can make it a little more difficult. So putting together a watch for kids that's also like a cheaper price point and just an easy level. Like the five kits we have right now, the difficulty levels are either hard or medium. So we still, we have plans for a kit that would be an easy level. That's great. And where can everybody get these watches? They're available on our website at rotatewatches.com. And then we work with some retailers as well. We do campaigns with Touch of Modern all the time. We're on Brookstone now. And then we're in various retail locations um, all over the country as well. Congratulations. That's great. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Well, I have to ask you one more question because you're 20, right? Oh no! At this point, I am. I just turned twenty-three. You're twenty-three. Okay. Well, you're still. You're still. Okay. You're still in your early twenties. So, do you wear a watch? <laughs> That's my question because I didn't. I didn't think that young people wore watches. <laughs> yeah. When when I was starting this for like the first while, I actually didn't wear a watch. Like I like I say, I I'm really trying to sell an experience, not the watch. But by now, yeah, I've started wearing a watch. I wear one of the watches that I've built. So I I kind of like make my own like custom stuff as well on the sides or. I get like samples for, you know, products that I haven't pulled out, put out yet. So I, I constantly switch between the watches I wear, but I actually usually wear the watches that I build. That's awesome. Well, Jennifer Zhang, I'm so glad we met and that you were able to join us on the Hazard Girls podcast today. I love what you're doing. And I'm personally very excited because now I think I might actually 
have found a gift for my dad that he doesn't already have and which he will love. It's like impossible. So thank you so much. Oh my gosh. I love that. It was so great to meet you and talk to you, Emily. It was so, so lovely to be on this podcast. You have been listening to the Hazard Girls podcast on Jacket Media, sponsored by Juno Jones, the stylish safety boot company. That's junojonesshoes.com. And you can go there to learn about our steel toe boots and to join the Hazard Girls community. I'm your host, Emily Salaby. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next week. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.